we found out that Hitler was alive and was living in Blooming America or Switzerland, I'm telling you now, we would book him for Good Morning Britain and we'd give him 10 minutes on the sofa. <laughs> Welcome to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction. Produced by Shout Out UK, the UK's leading political and media literacy education platform, in association with ACT, the Association for Citizenship Teaching. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, and I'm here today with Christo Fujas from the UK and a talk radio journalist and host. Tell us a bit about yourself and apologies for the complete mess up of your second name. Fufas. <laughs> Fufas. Fufas. Uh, hi there, yes. So uh, I'm Christo and I work at the moment for talk radio. It's a speech radio station across the UK, which uh, obviously gives people experts and members of the public, the chance to ring up and uh, talk about the big issues of the day. Uh, prior to that, I worked for various other speech radio stations. I've been uh, in radio probably for about, well, knocking on 20 years now, probably, uh, in various jobs, reporter, presenter, etc. Failed actor as well from a few years ago, too. <laughs> Failed actor. What, what made you go from acting to journalism? That's quite a switch. <laughs> oh, oh, well, actually, I was never a brilliant actor. And I think I got to the stage where I thought, I'm I'm now going to talk about actors rather than be one. So I made a decision in my uh, 20s that I would become an entertainment journalist and that was going to be my, my bag forever. I was never going to be anything other than an entertainment journalist. So I sort of flipped to be the person that critiqued those who were acting and the like rather than the person actually doing it. Though I might go back to it, that's another thing, but we'll, we'll have that conversation another day. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I moved from, from wanting to be the performer to sort of analysing performances, etc., by becoming a showbiz reporter, which I was for a few years. Amazing, amazing. So how has the current epidemic affected your work in, in journalism and, and reporting? Uh, it's, it's made it strange in as much as I'm doing a lot of work from home. Presenting a radio show from home and not in a studio environment is strange, especially as you don't have the interaction of those people in the gallery. You don't, you're not in that studio setting where you've got the red light that comes on, the bright lights, all the different screens in front of you, or the news feeds. You're literally in your living room with your laptop. So that's a little bit strange to feel fully engaged with your listeners when you're doing that. A lot of people have texted me saying, oh my God, you sound really depressed when you're presenting. I'm not depressed, but literally my partner is asleep in the next room when I'm presenting. So, so that's one of the reasons. Uh, so that's odd, but I also acknowledge I'm really lucky that I'm still able to do a job in some capacity and get some income during all of this. Um, so that's been a challenge. Um, and I think also the big challenge for everyone at the moment and this is for journalists, for those people consuming news, for everything, is to, to not get too consumed or depressed by it all. Um, I mean, I'm lucky. I'm only on at weekends at the moment. I, I'm not doing much in the week. But I think if I was reporting or talking about this daily, it would be quite difficult not to uh, perhaps uh, 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 lose the wood for the trees. And, and of course, some of your colleagues are um, doing that. 
And um, on that, what do you think the the role of the media and sort of responsible journalism is in this case? Because uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, if you're reporting it and therefore watching this stuff on a regular basis, it can sort of make it feel very biblical, almost apocalyptic. Um, but what do you think the role of the media is in all this? It's a really tricky one because the role of the media in, in, in general, I think, is to hold power to account, to give people the chance, certainly in talk, speech radio, talk radio, to give people the chance to have their say on what they think that power is doing. I think radio is the original social media, actually. It's the one where I can't still think, actually, of a of a form of media where you can hear something or see something on a video being recorded of a radio show and immediately call up and challenge that. And I can't think of any media where you can do that. So I think radio, aside from... Um, the practical side of just giving information to people is really important from that point of view to give people that chance to have their say because people are angry about lots of things nowadays and I think it's never been more important that people feel like they are being heard in some way. Um, I think radio and journalism at the moment, you know, speech radio especially again is very important because of, as I just said, the information side of things. I mean, the reason that radio ratings skyrocket when it snows or when there are crises like this is because people trust radio. They turn to radio for those sorts of things. But I think overall, the role of media during crises like this is to to separate, I think, some of the fact from fiction. And I think media in general over the last few years has got a bit confused about doing that. And I think we are starting to blur the lines between what is an ideological stance and opinion on something and what is actually the facts of the situation. And I think that sometimes the facts are being lost or opinions are being given too much airtime that perhaps aren't based on any facts. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And one particular event, um, starting with a B and ending with a T, kind of springs to mind when uh, when you talk about that. Um but on 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 the fact that you mentioned about holding power to account, because I think that's very very important. And the media has always kind of put itself in as the kind of role of you know exposing corruption or exposing issues and making sure that the the, the people in power, the powerful, are held to some form of public account. But obviously, with the growing distrust in media in general, do you think that's affecting that that kind of role, that traditional role that the media has had? Um, well, I think it's it's, it's a, there's a lot to say about that. Firstly, I think that that uh, a lot of the time uh, media there is bias and they will want to hold certain power to account and perhaps not hold other power to account in the same rigorous way and I think that's a big problem I mean I don't think I'm breaking any news here to say that a lot of our press is quite right-wing orientated a lot of the press as well is left-wing orientated a lot of their reporting comes through that prism there's a lot of accusations that the BBC is right-wing bias, left-wing bias. Again, there's always these worries that that, that, that reporting is going to come through um, that that prism. Um, but I think that the 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 issue that we've got at the moment with holding uh, uh, holding power to account is the fact that that a lot of power don't tell the truth, but more importantly a lot of power as well, especially during the Brexit debate, um, you've got this awful dilemma of trying to make sure that power is 
held to account, but also is done so in a way that, and this is the really important side of journalism that people don't talk about enough, as long as the ratings are reflected in the way in which power is held to, to account. Because uh, whether people like it or not, news needs to rate. News needs ratings. And I think that that is, news needs sales. And I think that is one of the ways in which the holding power to account can suffer. Because sometimes people who are in charge will think, quite understandably, because that puts revenue in the pockets of people involved, will think about the ratings and what will make a good headline and what will make a good story that will get viewers rather than what is the right thing to do in regards to holding power to account. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, completely makes sense. Completely makes sense. Shocking people rate. Shocking people, scaring people, frightening people, outraging people, thrilling people, you know... Getting to that emotion, that emotional response within people, rates. When I was, um, one of my previous jobs in life was to uh, produce Loose Women. And I was brought on to make it a more newsy show a few years ago. And in my shows, and I wasn't doing this in order to try and be sensationalist or anything else, but in my shows, in that hour, I wanted to take the viewer through a gamut of different emotions. The first part, I wanted to let them know what was happening and give them a laugh. The second part, I wanted to shock them. I wanted to tell them an amazing story about, um, I don't know, uh, the number of paedophiles that haven't been detected. Let's completely shock them in part two and, 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 and try and get ratings that way. But then in part three, let's have a celebrity guest. Let's have a bit of a laugh with them, but let's get something out of that celebrity we've never heard before. Part four, uh, let's perhaps have a more light-hearted discussion, which revolves around relationships or, or, or something else, but makes the viewer learn something. So I wanted the viewer to always to go up, to go down, to, to, to have a roller coaster of emotions through that hour. Whereas, uh, and that is news. I mean, that is, that is I think, what you what what those people who produce news really want because it's those core emotions happiness anger sadness fear all of those things that i think are the things that are a good story will play on what those uh, will play on the the things required to make it a good story that will rate and mm. i think that sometimes perhaps there's a little too much focus on that and I've been guilty of it, and loads of people have been guilty of it, of sort of top-line journalism, looking at the top most shocking line statistic, and then reporting on that, or, 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 or the public taking the story of that, rather than looking into the body of it, looking into the more complex side of it. Because that's boring, it doesn't rate. And I think mm. that's been a big problem with journalism. The other thing is, I think that there's been a big problem with false equivalents. What do you mean? This idea of of uh, you know so that's that's been the problem what i just described i think is a big mm. problem with commercial media which needs to worry a lot about ratings and of course revenue um, and all that kind of stuff that revenue comes and adverts and all those sorts of things i think the other big issue and i think the bbc has suffered from this a little bit and i love the bbc i'm a fan of the bbc but i think it's it's archaic and really needs um, a little bit of an overhaul and i think it's had a bit of an identity crisis in the last few years and as much as and again, I'll mention the B word. I think Brexit's really confused things. And I think we've seen a bit of it as well with coronavirus. And that is this idea that, that you can have 
fact, and, and, and you can have experts in the public eye, qualified experts, Nobel Prize winning experts in the public eye stating fact, but then you can have someone with an ideological stance that is put up in an interview or put up in a, uh, a studio environment against the person who's got those facts as an alternative vo voice in the pursuit of balance. And the problem with that is that in order to achieve that balance, you've got one person who's actually giving tangible facts and you've got another person refuting those facts based on ideology, based on opinion. Now, that's great. You've given balance to both sides of the argument there, but what you're doing is you're saying to the viewer, right, this Nobel Prize winning person who's telling you about the economics of the situation, the opinion of some backbench MP who's swivel-eyed and has hated the EU for 40 years is equivalent to a Nobel winner. Um, and I think that that's been a real crisis in journalism. We've seen it a bit with coronavirus as well. You know, we've seen amazing experts on TV giving their really informed and, 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 and qualified opinion that they've spent decades of their career uh, uh, being qualified to deliver this opinion, this fact to the audience. And then you've got people like the former model Caprice or Stanley Johnson, Boris's dad, wheeled out on television to say, well, I disagree with all of it and I think it's all a load of rubbish. There was a moment a few weeks ago where Caprice was actually in an argument with a with a doctor on the Jeremy Vine show who was giving advice and Caprice was saying that she didn't believe it. And I think that's a real problem that we've got nowadays. Since when did Caprice's opinion on coronavirus become equivalent to a doctor who studied it for 30 years? Now, in fairness to Jeremy Vine, he did actually make that point when Caprice was arguing, but not everyone would have seen him make that point. Not everyone would realise that Stanley Johnson, when he says he's going to ignore the advice and go to pubs and ignore what his son says, who's prime minister, not everyone is going to get the nuances, the intricacies. Some people are going to tune in and think, well, there you go. Prime Minister's dad doesn't agree with the advice. Let's ignore the advice. And I think that's where journalism is, is failing somewhat. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think there's an issue there. I mean, it, it also, I think, becomes worse when, you know, take take that... Um, Jeremy Vine show, you know, clips then get cut up, put on social media, so they won't even see um, Jeremy Vine making that point. All they will see is a back and forth between these two supposed experts, but all they're being they're being portrayed as experts. But of course, one is, and the other is giving them a, an opinion. I remember um, the sort of height of the Brexit debate. Um, there was a bit on, and I believe it was the BBC, but I I, I could be wrong. Uh, but it was on a national. TV uh, newscast, and they had the one of the um, Supreme Court judges debating with a guy that they had portrayed as that all they all they had said about this person is an expert from a think tank, not naming the think tank, not naming anything, and he was debating from an ideological standpoint, just giving his opinion, whereas this judge, this legal expert, was giving was giving their factually based understanding of the current legal framework of the situation, um, and as someone that does media literacy or that delivers media literacy in schools for me i find that baffling because it's not i understand the, the, idea the problem of... is matter with rates that's the problem yeah. it was like that ridiculous situational politics live where you have the former head of the world trade organization uh, pascal lamy i think his name is arguing with ian duncan smith 
about the World Trade Organization and how it works. And when we were going on to this potential of a no deal, and we were going to go on to these WTO rules, and, you know, you had, you had people who don't even know what the World Trade Organization is. You had uh, people on Twitter who are real extreme Brexiters, who are normal voters, had no idea on the WTO who would put on their Twitter bio, WTO rules, WTO Brexit, with no understanding of how the WTO works, no understanding of the, the protocols and processes required with the WTO, no sense of irony whatsoever that we would then be governed by a bunch of unelected bureaucrats who run the WTO. And then when you've got a, a situation on television where the former head, massively respected economist, is on TV who ran the very organisation that Brexit is claiming is going to be our saviour of no deal. When you've got the former head of that organisation saying you're talking rubbish, what you're saying isn't true, we cannot have this WTO Brexit that the Brexiters are all saying will be a success. It will not exist. And when you've got someone arguing against the person who ran the organisation being given the equal amount of airtime, being given equal uh, weighting, one is an opinion, one is a fact, that is when I think we're in a, 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 a lot of trouble. And I don't know really what the solution is, because if you didn't have that alternative opinion, a media outlet would be accused of bias. If you do have it, then you're duping your viewers or listeners into the both opinions having equal weighting. And I think that that's a real problem at the moment. And I think it's probably going to get worse. No, I, I agree. I mean, it's kind of begging the question because... You know, balance is, I understand, is an important thing. And if you have two experts, say two academics on, say, I don't know, uh, Brexit and its impact on healthcare, for example, that have differing opinions, then why couldn't those media organizations get um, those opposing experts, for example, to get in there? But, but I think um, the problem is, though, that with something like Brexit, where it was, it was very ideological and it was very emotional... And, you know, I get the reasons why a lot of people voted to leave the EU. I don't think a lot of the reasons have much to do with the EU, but I get the reasons why people uh, felt that they needed to vote to leave um, uh, the EU. But for many people, that was because their hearts were appealed to. Um, and I think the issue is, ge genuinely, you're probably not going to find many, I'm not saying none, because there were some, but you're not going to find many economists with decades of experience prepared to go on television and say, leaving our biggest trading partner is a good idea. You, you, you know, the, 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 I think that's one of the problems. You've probably got Conservative and, and, and a few Labour backbench MPs coming out of your ears that have no direct economic experience of 30 or 40 years you know who is who aren't qualified in economics anyway who will uh, be prepared to go on newsnight and and, and 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 say what they like that's great but i imagine if i was a booker on newsnight or on question time or on peston or any of those shows i imagine it must be a bit of a nightmare if your editor says to you right i want you to find me an economist with 30 years of experience who say it's a good idea to leave the eu what are you going to do? Kind of, if you're you're, you're, you know, you're probably not going to find one. So the next best thing is Nigel Farage or or, or, or Jacob Rees-Mogg or, or, or Andrew Bridgen or someone like that. One of those MPs wheel them out instead 
And then what you've got is an economist with 30 years of experience against an MP who is ideological and is opinionated, but not necessarily qualified. Well, I mean, I think the matter becomes worse as well, because that, that economist, and not to not to denigrate all academics or experts at this point, but, you know, some of them have huge wealth of experience, but aren't exactly the best talking in front of a camera or or at a radio station and so forth. And, you know, they will have the expertise, but might not be able to present themselves or present their argument in the most clear cut and concise way. Whereas that politician, like Nigel Farage, I mean, he's brilliant. He knows how to engage. He knows how to talk to people because he's had years of experience. And also the other thing is, and this goes back to where I was saying about sort of the, 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 the way in which news has to be nowadays, facts don't really rate. Uh, a fact, uh, a, Which is a sad reality. Our trading relationship and the protocols, etc., required for our trade with the EU um, is dull. Dull as can be. The science and the modelling behind coronavirus, the, the, sci- the, 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 the Downing Street and the NHS, etc., are using which may be flawed, who knows? That's, that's the point of journalism to ask those questions. But they're boring. I imagine they're incredibly dull. It's it's far easier and will rate far higher to, to appeal to people's emotional core. So, yes, facts and figures about how much poorer we'll be or, or the economic misery of Brexit, which was essentially the Remain campaign, dull as can be, but an emotional appeal that you're going to get back the Britain we once lost. That that we're going to give you some sense. We're going to help you make sense of a country you no longer understand. All of those problems of the last few years caused by economic austerity or the crash or Labour or the Tories or whoever. Do you know what? We've got a far simpler explanation for you, and that is the EU. That's what's taken everything away from you when you're. When you appeal to people's emotional core, the guttural side of things, not only will it probably move them and move them in a way that they're never actually going to move away from that argument, move them into a different position. But secondly, it rates. It rates. And with coronavirus, like I said, the stats very dull. But you say to someone, hey, it's a conspiracy from China. It's a conspiracy from America. It was it was created in a lab it's 5g those masks are coming to get you far more interesting far more fascinating immediately you're going to click on that story telling you that the 5g mask at the end of your garden is is killing you never mind but it's a load of rubbish but you'd click on that story 5g masks are killing you over here is the scientific data and, and modeling of 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 the spread of the disease that the the, the department of health has come up with which of those two is going to get more clicks? Yeah, no, I mean it'll be five G all, all the way, um, and it's but yeah, it's because I mean misinformation and you know conspiracy theories and whatever else have always um, you know have always in some way existed. People in the fringes of society have always sort of believed them. There's always been that link, but I feel like especially for us in the UK, um, the the Brexit debate when that Brexit debate started you really saw a push um, towards, you know, more misinformation campaigns. You really saw a lot of just completely misquoted or completely bogus facts coming out of the woodworks. Um, And obviously, in another completely different way, coronavirus has massively supercharged a lot of this misinformation and disinformation. But doesn't this show it? Doesn't this show? So we are reaping what we sow. I had a tweet exchange uh, with Daniel Kaczynski the other day, the 
the uh, Conservative MP, the Shropshire MP, massive Brexiter. He was the person that, 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 that tweeted out, remember that we weren't involved, that we, that we had nothing to do with the Marshall Plan, uh, you know, was not, was not very well informed, I think, during the Brexit debate. And he tweeted the other day to Piers Morgan, who is being very, very vocal at the moment. And again, one of the problems is, is Piers being vocal because he's genuinely annoyed about coronavirus and the response? Or is he being vocal because it extends brand Piers? Who knows? We'll get to that in a moment. But Piers has been very vocal on Good Morning Britain at the moment about the government's response and, and is not accepting at all any of the positive spin being put on any of the figures or any of the data or anything like that. And, and Daniel was annoyed. And Daniel tweeted Piers saying, you know, myself and the Conservative colleagues are very annoyed. You're very negative. You're not putting a positive spin on things. You know, there are facts here about how well we've been doing that you're ignoring. And I tweeted back to Daniel saying, this is the environment you created. You, as a prominent Brexiter, you never gave one balanced reasons argument when it came to the Brexit debate. You put forward ideological reasons why we need to leave the EU, which you're welcome to have, but weren't necessarily based in reason, balanced debate and fact. And what you're now doing is complaining about the very environment that you helped create when it comes to these sorts of debates. And, and you know, I stand by that because I think a lot of a lot of the time nowadays we are more concerned with an ideological split. We're more concerned with an opinion rating than we are with facts. And unfortunately, when it comes to a big crisis like this, this is where we re where it comes back to to bite us on the backside because it's all well and good when it's something like leaving the EU. Well, it's not all well and good; it's a disaster. But it's all well and good. Going to say about it. <laughs> leaving the EU that we say, uh, look, we're going, we're going to ignore those experts. We actually heard it. We actually heard Michael Gove saying during all of that, we've had enough of experts. We're going to ignore experts. Well, great. But within months, we're in a massive public health crisis, and only a few months before you've you've devalued what experts have to tell people. And now people will die as a result of that, because mm. people will remember that experts' opinions are to be dismissed. They will dismiss them, and then we'll have the consequences. So you can't have it both ways. Mm. You know, if, you're, if you want to make an ideological change or if you want to change things, and you're going to do so dishonestly or do so in a way that does not present all the facts or do so in a way that has, not, uh, that has given false equivalents for opinions that aren't as valid as those of experts then you'll get what you want, probably, and you'll get your Brexit, or you'll get your election win, or you'll get whatever you want. But just like I said, be prepared that you're going to then be governing over a society that doesn't want to listen to government or experts or facts. And that will make a problem down the line. And that's why people are now running around like headless chickens, wondering whether coronavirus is real, wondering whether the death toll is real, wondering whether we did the right thing, wondering whether 5G masks are going to kill us. And that's all come from the very politicians that are now complaining those things are happening. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's baffling and infuriating because you, you're quite right. Like it's, it's almost like uh, uh, you're reaping the things you've sown, but comically have come across at probably the quickest moment in time because now we're seeing all of that which they've used um, or benefited from during the Brexit debate now coming back and biting them in the, uh, biting them in the behind.
But journalism is to blame for that as well. Mm. You know, because we are, again, this goes back to ratings, we've put those people on television that have said those outrageous things. We've put those people on television. We've, Nigel Farage and the rubbish that he spouted about in the EU um, was on question time more than any other politician, I think, in recent years. I think that's changed probably now, but it, but he was. Why? Well, because he'd rate, because he's great value, because he, he he's a good talker, he's an amazing politician, he's got brilliant charisma. So, then we can put aside the fact that what comes out of his mouth is complete rubbish. <laughs> He'll rate, and he's full of charisma. So, we are to, I think, blame for that in media. It's actually really depressing in journalism, I think, nowadays, actually, because I think that the the as things get more and more extreme, what's now happening is that the tail is wagging the dog. So we've gone from looking for people with extreme opinions or 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 opinions that will rate or or opinions that are controversial that aren't based in fact. We've gone from looking for those people to put them on TV because they will rate to actually people now uh, molding their own careers to become that thing. So therefore, that's why you've got lots of mini Katie Hopkins on Twitter. That's why you've got lots of people who will deliberately, I think now, lots of media commentators who will deliberately uh, tweet something that is factually wrong or controversial in order, because they know they'll get booked for various TV shows then, to go on and smelt that controversial opinion. So it's actually now what, what was once the media booking people who had natural extreme opinions now people are forming the extreme opinions in order to get booked by tv shows i'm, I'm glad you mentioned katie hopkins because literally whilst we were talking that was the person that i could imagine because she had literally nothing to bring to the table in any constructive way whatsoever in any debate she ever took a part in but just had no morals and said the first and most inflammatory thing she could think of uh, and got columns in some of the biggest newspapers in the country, got booked to speak at some of the biggest events in the country, was appearing on TV um, loads of times before her um, before her downfall because she became a bit too toxic. But it's just terrifying to think that those kind of people are being created by the media networks that, are, that we're also looking to at the moment to give us um, the facts and basics. I mean, do you think... Mateo, that- if we found out that Hitler was alive and was living in blooming America or Switzerland, I'm telling you now, we would book him for Good Morning Britain and we'd give him 10 minutes on the sofa to find out what he's feeling about things now. If Hitler were alive today, he'd be the 12.15 guest on this morning to talk about his new book that's coming out. Now, actually, he's realised he's done a U-turn. You can see the strap on the screen now. Hitler's emotional confession. And, and, you know, you could see him sobbing with Holly and Phil, saying how he really screwed up and he wasn't so bad after all. Because we'd give him five minutes. We'd give him seven minutes on television if he were alive today, because we'd want to hear that story. And, And that is... That is the truth, and it's also immensely depressing. But you you tell me, an editor that wouldn't put someone like that on telly for 10 minutes if we realised that they were still around. Of course they would. So, I mean, considering that, and I think a lot of what you're saying is... is is true and linked heavily to the to the level of misinformation that's being pumped around and is being spread around. Because again, like you said at the beginning, you know, facts and feelings are being muddled up, and people's feelings obviously play more 
um, to drier or more sustained fact. How can we move forward? I mean, do you, do you see the media industry and journalism changing at all, considering that now we're facing a crisis, not just the pandemic, but also a crisis around information where people are dying from it? I mean, there are, there are reports in the UK of people drinking Dettol, for example. Because they think it cures them of of, of coronavirus. But it doesn't help when you've got a, a, a president who actually, I think, he said the words to inject yourself with disinfectant. Yeah, that was unfortunate. Wasn't Absolutely it? barking. I mean, again, that just goes to it. Really does play into the precise points we've been making, and this goes back to the Brexit vote. Why people voted for that because they felt that they were being left behind. They felt their country that they didn't really recognise it and didn't see any of the benefits of different people coming here. They felt that. The, the economically richer people, as I said, were getting richer, poorer people getting poorer. They felt um, left behind. And that, I think, led to the rise of the politician probably around 2014, 2015, I'd say this started, where that politician, like Donald Trump today, saying the things about disinfectant, that politician could be speaking complete rubbish. However, the fact that seemingly that politician appears to be telling the truth because they've got such an outrageous opinion that's based on complete rubbish, people almost don't care what they say. They just care that they perceive that that politician is telling the truth. So Farage can come out and say completely rubbish. You know, I hate the EU. The EU are responsible for, for, for bananas not being the right length and your chocolate not being called dairy milk anymore and the Yahoo being a different wattage. And people can say, well, I don't know if what he's saying is true, but I like the way he's saying it. To me, that sounds like he's standing up for the common person. And there will be people today, same with Corbyn. Corbyn, completely far-left ideology that a lot of the country have rejected many times, but a lot of his supporters who are younger will look at what he says and says, well, he's saying something different to everyone else. And there might be nothing in it. There might be no facts in it. But I like the fact that he's making a point no one else is making. So therefore, he must be honest. So mm. I'll vote for him. And there will be people today who heard what Donald Trump said about putting disinfectant in, and some of his supporters will say, well, look, no one else is saying that. He's the only one that's got the guts to say that and it might not be true but i don't care because he's my president and he's telling the truth so a perception of the truth via an outrageous opinion seems to be more appealing to the electorate now than a a politician that is trying to present a case based on facts and and data and research and i think again we're in a really dangerous time because of that actually and boris is the master in it boris has really uh, harnessed that as well you know, get Brexit done. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant slogan. And never yeah. mind that it's you know, rubbish and it's not true and you can't get Brexit done. And he knew full well he couldn't get it done at the end of January. People will hear that and think, he's got to get Brexit done. He's a, he's an honest man. And vote for it. And it worked. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it's almost like they went to marketing school before they before they joined this, let alone, um, uh, let alone other degrees. But um, I, I wonder how much of this plays into, into bias. Because a lot of... A lot of the arguments that you're that you're bringing up, like you know, around Brexit or around uh, Donald Trump in the states, a lot of it comes down to. Because uh, let's be honest, like, all human beings have bias, right? It could be something as innocent as um, what foods you like and what advice you'd give about what food you should eat. Um, to music, we all have biases to certain things, but and those are harmless. But then they can become quite harmful when the bias so you don't have come bias down to, to survive. 
Otherwise, you'd sit there every single day and say, oh, my God, I made such a fool of myself and blah, blah, blah. You will always replay things in your head, I think, to make out that you are not as crazy or that you've not done things wrong or whatever. Because otherwise, you couldn't get through life. You know, there are all... So bias is a, is a really important way in which I think we we keep ourselves sane by by having confidence. I mean, confidence in ourselves is almost bias because sometimes that confidence is a little bit misplaced. But without it, we wouldn't be able to function. So... I think a bit of bias is good, but you're right. I but, think. but people can easily manipulate that bias. Because say, for example, and, and what you mentioned, you know, bias in yourself or whatever else in your abilities is a good thing because it gives you confidence, arguably. But when bias comes into things like race or religion or, or gender or sexuality, whatever else, when, when people are biased towards that, uh, it, it can be, it is very damaging to society. And politicians can and often use that at times. Politicians, journalists... Um, People that are in the public eye for whatever reason can often play on that and play on people's hatreds or, or dislikes of certain things. Well, it's exactly what's happened. I mean, that's why we've got we've had headline after headline after headline for decades that immigrants are going to come and take your job and that that you know it it, it rates to scare people. It rates. You will sell more newspapers by scaring people that an immigrant is going to come and take your job. You're not going to sell as many papers if you put on the front page that that yes, immigration has caused problems, but actually there's been a huge economic benefit. It's not going to sell many papers if you put on the front page that actually the person you should be blaming is the politicians, not the immigrants who came here. That's very boring. Right on the front page, immigration, your job at stake. What people are going to buy that newspaper, aren't they? So that's why I think it's really important that all of us read more than one newspaper and watch more than one tv news channel because you know quite understandably and they have their readership and i get it you know you're going to get the news through a slightly right-wing prism with the sun you're going to get the news through a slightly right-wing prism with the times you're going to get it through a slightly left-wing prism with the guardian you're going to get it in a left-wing prism with the with the mirror you're going to get it into a more right-wing prism with the mail you're going to have a barking mad Blooming Tory press release on the front page on a daily basis on the Express. Uh, the iPaper, probably a bit more balanced, but not completely. BBC, well, some people say balanced left, some people say balanced right. You know, you've got all of these different media and the way in which people need to consume their news nowadays is to not read a paper or watch a TV channel, but it's to read and watch all of them and then come to your conclusion based on all of that, because otherwise you will be feeding into their bias and also they will be feeding into your bias and you'll be falling for it. The problem is, though, not very many people think like that. And I think if you are someone who is perhaps not savvy when it comes to the media, if you are someone who is um, who, who wants to find a reason why you feel left behind, which is why I think a lot of people voted for Brexit, it, it, it's an easy win, isn't it? You look at a newspaper that tells you that it's down to the EU, that everything's gone wrong, and you've seen that front page 50 times in the last year, it's very easy to probably say, you know what, maybe they're right. This is why my life is terrible. Yeah. And I'm not going to look into other reasons why it might be terrible, or I'm not going to think about the government as to why it's terrible. It's far easier than I just believe what they said on the front page. And it's a real shame. It's a, it, it, it's a real shame. And I'm not actually... I'm partly blaming the newspapers and the media, but I'm a part of that. But I'm also blaming a bit the public for not being more savvy as to consuming lots of different types of media. I mean, do you, do you think that um, 
because obviously, I mean, it's especially with the internet and the way technology's um, headed, it's really changed the landscape, changed the way we engage in news. Obviously, algorithms and social media means that actually you end up falling into a either left wing, right wing, or whatever bubble. Um, even though on the surface you can say, yeah, I'm reading loads of different loads of different sources, but when you look at those sources, they could be Daily Mail, Times, Infowars, Breitbart. You're always going to get a slightly wackier version of the same of, of the same opinion. Whereas you could do the exact same thing on the left wing. So, is there a role here in education, or maybe even um, I don't want to say the word censorship, but looking at uh, regulators to take more of a role, being like, well, actually, when the media push out, say, speakers or push out guests or whatever, they have to be or should have some relevance or experience or knowledge on a given topic i just wonder if there's you make a good point that the, the number one you know and i'd put this in neon letters and and and, and fluorescent to it down to me is the education side of things mm. I, I think we're going down a dodgy road where we start trying to regulate the media because that could be as equally open to abuse as the very newspapers that are perhaps or or, or tv channels or 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 bookers for tv channels that are putting on pundits that are perhaps uh, doing the public a disservice, I think I'd rather that than a government that regulates the media any more than it is already. Um, having said that, the key to that is the education side of things and that the, the younger people are taught to be really curious, to be taught that there's nothing wrong with reading a Daily Mail every day if you want to. I read the Mail Online all the time, but I read it knowing that... The, the, the reporting is coming through a prism of a view of the world that is that fits their agenda. Now, if you know that, it's not the end of the world. And that's through education. That's through reminding people to be curious, reminding young people to be curious, and reminding young people, more importantly, I think, nowadays than ever, to not fall into an ideological trap. Because in debate nowadays as well, we're seeing more and more of this, that actually... You know, it used to, to be that you would hear an idea or you'd hear a story or you'd hear a proposal by the government or you'd hear a proposal by uh, a, a particular uh, lobby group or a, a minority group. And you would look at that particular idea or proposal and you'd think, right, is that a good idea? What's my opinion on this? Where do I stand on this? If I were to go on the radio and talk about this, what am I going to think? And that's how I approach things, weighing it up, looking at the different stories. But increasingly what's happening and where young people shouldn't fall into this trap is that, that people are forming their opinions based on ideology before actually looking at the story itself. So, for instance, there may be a story about, I don't know, a, a particular aspect of trans rights, or there may be a story about a particular aspect of, of immigration for instance, and immediately, before almost even knowing any of the facts, my opinion is formed because I am on the right of politics. So therefore I will be anti whatever rights the trans people want, or I will be anti whatever rights uh, those immigrants want, by default, whatever it is, because my ideology says I need to be against that. And then you look for facts almost, or you look for articles and news sites that then back up that opinion you've just built for yourself. Which I try and do, and I realise this isn't the most sexy kind of journalism anymore, but, 
you know, on some things I'm on the right, on some things I'm on the left. On some things I'm probably, I, I would never say I'm far right, but I'm quite right wing probably economically, but I'm quite left wing when it comes to, 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 to social advancement. Because to me, that's probably where debate should be, that you are. But I don't think that's happening anymore. I think nowadays people are so polarised and they're so ideologically stuck that a, a, a story, you know, and it happens on the left as well. I'm not just digging the right. You know, there will be a story perhaps about quality that immediately people on the left will say, yes, brilliant idea. We need to give, you know, again, I'll use trans as the example because it's a big debate that's happening at the moment. But people on the left will say, yes, we need to give trans people more rights. But no question. And we need to make sure that this happens. And obviously there's a big debate about that when it comes to women's rights and the like. When in actual fact, there are nuances to that debate that might mean that it's not a brilliant idea immediately that on the left you think it is. But because ideologically that's where you stand, you'll immediately say you're in support of it. And I think what we've lost is people's ability to analyse and to form opinions themselves based on facts again i think it's it's immediately i'm going to take that stance because ideologically that's where i stand yeah and I, I see a lot of people on, on on social media and off social media going going down that road um and it's, it's, it's almost a lack of critical thinking it's like that healthy level of skepticism not cynicism but skepticism of well I don't know where I really stand on the story until I've read into it a little bit more rather than where I'm going to blanket agree this way because it fits my log- my ideological stance or, or whatever it may be. So f- for for anybody that is that is scouring the news or for any young person like what in your line of work as a journalist uh, and and as a um commentator presenter and so forth like how do you um fact check or or make sure that the stories that you bring up or that you talk about are credible and, and fact-based like what's is, is there a process that you have that before i mean there are a few rules i i try to adhere to um again if we're using the last few years as an example certainly during coronavirus firstly what i'm doing during my program is reminding people many times that i am not an expert and i remind them when i am talking to an expert and i remind them when i am talking to someone whose opinion I'm getting and the fact that you know when we analyze data or analyze figures or analyze whether the UK is doing well in comparison to other countries again an important reminder that it's two people here who are journalists who are looking at things and trying to analyze it but we are not doctors so I think that's really important to point that out and there needs to be a bit more of that being done at the moment which I don't think is uh there are a few rules of thumb for instance um, you know, the Mail Online is a really good place to get stories, but you have to do so, I think, with a few caveats. You need to remind people that's being reported in there. I mean, this is just for speech radio uh, and how I do it. But, you know, you have to remind people that there is another side of the story. It's very important and it's actually a legal obligation when it comes to Ofcom that I give people the chance to put forward an alternative view. And even if I never hear that alternative view, I have to keep reminding people that they can come back with their alternative view. But also I think there are a few clues within a story to work out whether it stands up or not when you're reading it. And I think anyone can take this, these 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 uh, pointers as to whether a story is real. You can tell from the headline whether it's a bit sensationalist. 
you know, uh, 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 most people, most foreigners who use the NHS are health tourists. Well, actually, it might be 50.01%. You know, that's just an example off the top of my head, but always look into the body of the article. Uh, if an article has direct quotes attributed to a person, I would probably say that that article is is pretty reliable. If it has direct quotes from a source, maybe not so. You need to to, to, to put that forward with a grain of salt. But uh, generally, whatever publication it's in, if they, if they attribute direct quotes to an actual person, um, I think that gives the story a... Uh, a bit more credibility because otherwise they'd have to have walls of steel to make those up, which I don't think they would. Um, so that's a, a, a part of it. Um, I mean, I don't do a lot of print journalism. I write opinion pieces, but I don't actually do the kind of print journalism that, that relies on a lot of sources um, because I think there is a, a big debate around that at the moment and about politicians who who brief the press as unnamed sources uh, obviously it's very difficult to hold those particular assertions to account when they're not named and i think that's what we need to be careful of obviously as a um as, as a radio host you um you come across a lot of stories i've been on your show a few times and we sort of go on 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 a number of different stories and so forth and obviously um as we talked about earlier we all have biases and we all have a certain bias to to a story or another and it's important to to recognize i think each and everyone's bias i think it's important to recognize your own bias but how do you deal with your own bias should i say when you're covering or talking about a story is there anything that you can suggest that you you go through that says okay well i know that i'm biased towards the story in this way um how can i i'm honest Hmm. and i mean i'm lucky i work in commercial radio which has slightly different rules in as much as i'm allowed to be biased Uh in as much as you know i don't work for the bbc where you can't give your own opinion in commercial radio I'm lucky enough that I can, though obviously, you know, we've seen the results of people being able to give their uh, opinions on the radio um, that are unchallenged uh, or perhaps not presented as opinions. I always, I set out the stall as in what the story is, but then um, because I work in a commercial environment, I always give my opinion on the story. And if I have one and... I make it very clear that I'm biased. You know, I've been, for years, very anti-Brexit, even after the referendum. I've been hugely anti-Brexit. In fact, I think I'm one of the few people left on speech radio who is openly still anti-Brexit, in as much as I'm not anti it happening, I'm just anti what I see as an incredibly bad idea. I realise it's happening. I realise there's a majority for it to happen. I realise the debate has moved on. It is going to happen. But I still think it's a bad idea. Now, I've always been clear about that. Always. That's bias. What I'm always also very clear about is that I welcome, in fact, I crave people to call me who have an alternative opinion to challenge me and to tell me why they think that opinion is wrong. And so I think if you are open about your bias in that way, that's fine, because mm. I'm being open about the fact that I'm biased. Um, what you should never do is go on the radio and sort of present your bias as fact. Um, but what I also won't do, and what I've taken a lot of abuse for, is I won't, I don't like people coming on and not being able to give facts 
themselves. Um, and, you know, I actually sort of avoid Brexit as a topic. I'm actually kind of relieved in a way, but there was certainty after the election in December that meant that we did move the debate on because even though I hate the fact it's happening, I'm kind of relieved it is because having to debate the legitimacy of it up until then, as valid as that was, is actually quite a difficult job because, you know, you're fighting emotional arguments, which is the point we were making earlier, with facts, and that's quite difficult. And sometimes those facts are seen as bias. Mm. You know, if I were to give the fact, as a Remainer, that our prosperity has been increased and our wealth as a nation has been increased as a result of our membership of the EU, that's a fact. Now, there are also lots of other facts that will say that there are reasons why our EU membership was a bad idea, which I respect, but that is a fact. Mm. You present that on the radio as part of your argument and you'll have hundreds of people calling you and telling you that you're lying and that you're putting that forward as part of your bias. So even when you're open about being biased, they, they, they don't still think you're a liar anyway. So it's become, I guess the word I'll use is just toxic. It's become very, very toxic, I think, debate in this country. And I think we're lucky on talk radio that we're pretty balanced and we allow a lot of different people on air. But I've heard other speech radio stations where I think it's, 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 it's become too extreme, too far. I mean, Nigel Farage, I don't think he should be on the radio on a daily basis. No, no, personally. no, nor do I. And I've, I found that shocking that he was, um, that he has a radio, uh, a radio program at all. I think that's, that kind of is a testament to um, the times we're living in. And I think the word I was looking for, which I uh, forgot earlier, was, um, and we live in a post-factual society where emotional arguments um, trump factual arguments just because they are more powerful. It's unfortunate, but they are much more powerful. I have spent hours arguing with people on Twitter about Brexit. I don't anymore. I haven't for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, in fact, I'm not on Twitter as much as I've been for a long time actually lately because uh, of that very reason. You know, the, 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 you can present a fact-based argument on a particularly controversial subject till you are blue in the face and it will mean absolutely nothing because people will think either that you're lying or will come back to you with various other answers that aren't based in fact. And you're you're fighting facts, you're fighting emotion with facts. Mm. And when and, and when people made such an emotional decision to leave the EU based on a nostalgic view of our past and uh, a, a, a disillusioned view of our present, um, you know, that's that's a really emotional thing. That's a real really emotional um, decision that a lot of those people made. A lot of those people made that decision based on their emotions of what they felt Britain was and felt Britain should be. And putting forward a fact is really dull in comparison to that. Really, really dull. I guess we've got to change the way um, we we consume information online and we've got to change the way we, um, we, we debate. And I think a lot of it stems from um, media literacy and education in schools and making sure the next generation come up into society having the tools necessary to one criticize and critically analyze the information they receive but also be able to understand how to get balanced views on things and how to debate using fact as their method of um of of arguing a point as opposed to emotional arguments which yes are powerful but mean nothing and just skew the debate in the long run 
Yeah, it's 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 a tricky one. You know, I think the and that's where perhaps organisations like the BBC should be stepping in because obviously their presenters don't give opinions. Uh, well, not mainly on huge political things. I think they're allowed to give opinions on various things, but on, on big politics things you can't. Um, and you have to, when you're on the BBC, which I have been, you sort of put forward a, some people say this argument and some people say that argument, and where do you stand? Doesn't make probably for the most thrilling radio, I have to be honest, because I think <laughs> hearing a presenter's opinion that you can challenge or hearing it being challenged by other people is, is it, it makes quite compelling listening. Um, but the problem is, again, you've got this, this dilemma of, what do we want? Do we want like like quite dull fact based listening, or do we want ratings? And unfortunately, going forward, I don't think it's going to get much better because you are always going to have people who want to make their opinions out of make their careers out of outrageous opinions. You're always going to have TV producers or editors wanting to put those outrageous opinions on television because they will rate. You know, this isn't getting better every year this is getting worse. And so, yes, younger people being savvy to that and knowing that that's happening is, is more important than, than ever. And also knowing what is being omitted, being enough across the news that you know when something's being omitted from the story as well. I mean, I think once you're at that stage, then you're in a really good situation where you can read a story in the Daily Mail about coronavirus and you can say well actually they've left out the bit that was being reported elsewhere that was quite a good thing you read the guardian side of things and think well actually no you know what they didn't make that point about immigration that was made elsewhere so you start doing it yourself you start editing the bits out yourself or you start bringing in the bits of the story yourself that 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 will make it a more balanced story because of your own knowledge and the way you get that is to have a critical mind but also is just to read the news there is actually if you're interested in journalism or in debate there is actually no reason why you shouldn't be reading every single news website every single day every day twice a day it's just timing isn't it you start to wonder but how um, much do you think that the you know the amount of time that young people are on social media sites um you know you could be on news websites secondly as well by the way twitter is my one of my main sources of news um and do I take it all as red? No, but I think Twitter is an amazing resource for news. I'm seeing the different, you know, in front of you, you've got 20 different articles coming up, you know, all the same story. And, you know, you could tell them it's from the headline, what take you to get mm. from each article. Um, no, Twitter's brilliant for news. Twitter's brilliant for breaking news. No, I, I, I use Twitter for that, for that very reason, actually, for a lot of things. Um, aside from work, but just personally, I use it for that, as well as um, looking at some hilarious debates around various different topics because in Twitter they can get really toxic very quickly um, which is quite funny if you're not if you're not the subject of the toxicity um, one, one one thing I did want to ask um, slightly on Razor but obviously you you went from as you mentioned initially from acting to journalism and then and then to uh, to hosting your, uh, your your shows how did you make the transition from from doing uh, this kind of more written or or supporting or producing shows and so forth, and then and then on onto your own show. And did you find it quite difficult when you first started off? Um, well, it was a weird route because what happened was that I um, decided to become a showbiz reporter, 
and I was going to stay in showbiz. Um, again, you know, I was young. I didn't really have the confidence around hard news, actually, back then, if I'm honest. On, on with hindsight, I didn't really think I could do it. I didn't think I was smart enough to do it, actually, without realising that the... the uh, the honesty of not knowing about a story is actually one of the greatest, greatest assets you can have in speech radio. Um, you know, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really brilliant. And I've done it quite a few times. If I don't know the opinion on a story to go on the radio and tell the listeners, like, educate me. Mm. When I first started doing hard news shows, which was nighttime radio, um, I, I, I used to do that a lot. I used to think that you you used to have to be a, a massive expert. Like I used to get to radio shows and get there three hours before I presented them, and I'd read everything. I'd write really long, almost Shakespearean scripts outlining, <laughs> you know, my show. And I was dreadful. I was a terrible presenter. And it was only when I stopped all of that and I just read enough news so that I'm across everything um, and then started getting into work actually without much prep and being more honest and going on to the radio. This was prior to sort of when things got a lot more toxic in debate, but going mm -hmm. on the radio and saying, right, you know, there is this plan for schools. I don't have children. I do not know if this is a good idea or a bad idea. You educate me based on what you know. And I used to love doing um, shows like that. But anyway, sorry, back to your question, because that's how I got into hard news. So um, I did what a lot of people uh, do, um, and a lot of people have to do, is I started on work experience. So I nice. trained as a journalist, did a postgrad, and then got into a speech radio station on work experience, cleaning out the stationery cupboard, you know, getting the coffee, doing all of that stuff. Um, and then... Uh, luckily enough, I uh, was then offered some freelance reporting shifts. So did that for a while. And then uh, I used to uh, take work wherever I can, which is what you used to do in your 20s. And I used to do uh, a little showbiz update on a particular presenter's show on a Saturday morning giving the Strictly results, I think, was what I used to do. I mean, I'm going back <laughs> sort of when Strictly started. It's probably over 15 years. And that person went on to buy the radio station, <laughs> and, and which I didn't realise, and uh, was particularly impressed with my efforts and so gave me a show as soon as they bought the station. So then I made the transition from reporter to presenter, which um, is not as easy as people think, Um and also probably not a jump I'd have made as quickly, actually, again, with hindsight. I think a lot of the time you sort of, um, you're so keen to get there. I mean, being given my own show was the dream of dreams. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I got it. Um, but actually, um, and you and I just had this chat sort of off, 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 off mic a moment ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the time we're all sort of keen to become the sort of person in the hot seat without remembering how much fun it is to be the reporter out and about or the or the pundit in the studio, the plus one that doesn't have the, the pressure. Um, and so uh, uh, it, it, it hasn't been as easy and as fun at first as I thought it would be. But of course it is now because it is easy. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And then once you start doing it, you start getting used to it and then, uh, and then it becomes uh, second nature. Yeah, but then I, I had to leave showbiz, if anyone is wondering, because I just, you know, I, I did it for a few years and... There's only a, 
uh, uh, there's only a, a certain amount of showbiz one man can report on before you realise that there is no soul and that you're actually sort of going on the red carpet and asking a Towie person's opinion on a story, you know, and, 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 and at some <laughs> point you feel like there is nothing in life other than like that. You've got to think, is this what I'm doing? I'm actually standing on a red carpet waiting for Gemma Collins. And I think it was it was one of those moments I had where I, was, I, I said to myself, I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You can't do it. And then amazingly, that week, the person that presented overnight happened to be off. And so I was offered a chance to cover him, never having done a proper sort of hard news show before. And as it turned out, I was better at that because I ended up with the highest rated show on that station that's ever that's ever been on that station from doing hard news and having conversations um which I've just just kind of described to you about those big issues yeah yeah. I mean that's amazing and uh all all, um kind of kind of worked itself out quite nicely with um with that person being off um but uh that's why they say you never take a holiday in radio because <laughs> your show nicked because then you know you end up with your show nicked and unfortunately this poor person was away and then came back and found that um you know I'd, I'd ended up with his program unfortunately but that's how um, radio works and um if i say so myself it was a good decision from them because like i said it ended up with the highest highest rated share show. on that on that um on that station um it's a really good lesson for young people as well, actually. The, the, mm-hmm. the, what you think is a limitation in here, which I did, which was which was stopping me. I very nearly didn't take that show. I very nearly didn't take that cover, one cover show that was uh, what sort of launched me into doing proper hard news speech presenting, which I've actually done now for far longer than anything else. And um, that was because I wasn't, I, I probably wasn't as informed as I am now. I'll be honest about that. But I also didn't have the confidence that I have now. Um, and actually, it turned out perhaps some of those attributes that I was worried were holding me back were the very things that that made me prosper in that role because I was prepared to come on the radio when it came to a big subject and ask to be educated. I was prepared to change my mind during debates and, and again, I think that's really important. I think there's nothing more powerful on radio than hearing a big debate. And I think a lot of this has been lost over the last few years because everything's been about Brexit. But yeah, prior yeah. to that, when, you know, news wasn't so toxic and we'd have long, you know, I did it through the night show. So I would sort of, you know, be able to really devote a lot of time to various topics, whether it be mental health, whether it be sort of abuse, whether it be what's happening in politics, whether it be more light-hearted stories, nostalgia ones. We'd have a really good amount of time to drill down into them. And I used to absolutely love it when I would go on the radio with an opinion that I was convinced was correct. And two hours later, I'd done an about turn, not because I'm fickle, but because I'd actually, through facts and through really interesting conversations with interesting listeners, actually had my opinion um, changed and I know if I had my opinion changed there would have been people listening who had their opinion changed and that's what is really powerful about speech radio and I, I think actually what's a shame but maybe it'll come back now is that through all this toxicity and polarisation over the last few years 
we've lost a lot of that i think yeah no it, it's it's uh, and it's interesting because it's not just in um journalism and, and radio that we get this but also we get this in in, in politicians where they're they, they have this idea of you know no reverse gear or i have this opinion i'm gonna stick to it regardless of how many facts are thrown at me and i think that's I, 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 I do think the media is a bit to blame for that as well, actually. Well, media and politicians, I think it's something that's that's been happening ever since actually the Tony Blair years to an extent where, you know... Well, I think yeah. prior to that, I mean, you turn if you want to, the lady's not for turning because, you know, that is one of Thatcher's most famous quotes from the early 80s because, of course, she was um, being, being written up daily in all the newspapers waiting for her to make the inevitable... U-turn regarding her economic policy, yeah. and and the problem is with 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 expressions like that and and that kind of ideology, which has gone on for decades in journalism, is that actually I I have a lot of contempt for politicians. I think most of them are incompetent morons. However, what I will <laughs> say is that that I am a far better radio presenter and I became a far better radio reporter years ago due to the mistakes I've made due to you know making horrific boo-boos on air or making horrific edit problems where I was a reporter and putting together packages all of those sorts of things and they made me a far better reporter and there are certain mistakes I've made I'll never make again and I, what I will say as a loathsome defense of politicians is that I think sometimes we don't give enough credit to politicians who do hold their hands up when they've made a mistake. And I'm not sure we give enough credit, you know, acceptable mistakes. I'm not talking about people that, you know, break the law or fiddle their expenses. But, yeah, yeah, of course. you know, I, I, I think sometimes, it, you know, having someone in a position of, 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 of power that has made a mistake but has rectified it actually makes them a better leader. And I think sometimes we are very, very keen to say uh, uh, that th 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 we need a resignation when something's gone wrong. We immediately need a resignation. Almost we don't care who resigns as long as someone resigns. You know, we don't care if a politician was responsible. We don't care if that, that minister was responsible or not. They take responsibility. They resign the stories. Which 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 makes them which which makes it almost impossible for them to then I mean, you know, if, if you're a politician that's got that you're thinking of your career, it will make it it will make it the obvious thing to double down and not admit to any mistake whatsoever. To be inhuman and never ever ever make an, an error of judgment. And uh, and there are some errors of judgment that are forgivable, but I think sometimes in the press we are baying for a resignation, or as soon as someone admits or says that they believe that that, 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 that that they've made some sort of error or that a colleague has, we immediately jump on it as an admission of guilt, meaning that they should resign immediately or be fired or whatever else. And I, I think that that is, it, 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 it actually right. promotes a culture of dishonesty because you're right, then that what that means is that people try and either cover things up or try and dupe the public or, or try and make out that it was something that was planned all along or, or whatever else, mm -hmm. rather than actually say... Um, you know what? I made I made a a, a, a a mistake. I would love nothing more, and it's never going to happen than for Boris to, to 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 come out and say, you know what? I wasn't very honest at times, and during the Brexit debate, I wasn't, and I wasn't sure I was going to remain or leave, and you know the bus was a big lie, and all those sorts of things. And I'm really sorry, but he could never do that. He'd never do that because as soon as he did, we'd say we'd hate, he'd have to resign. Yeah, and he, and he doubled down to such an extent. But it's true, you know, one, your mistakes, you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes and, 
and if people were more honest about the the, the mistakes they made, I think we'd have a uh, um, a better press, better political class, and I think we'd as a society uh, be a lot more honest. Christo, thank you so much. Before you go, um, where can people uh, go on social media to follow some of the work you're doing, and when can they listen to you on talk radio? Well, I'm currently on talk radio at weekends, early breakfast, five till seven a.m. Though I pop up in the week sometimes when we're not in madness like this uh so weekend early breakfast on talk radio which is at talk radio or talkradio.co.uk forward slash live if you want to listen or we're on dab uh you can find me on christo underscore radio on twitter christo underscore radio on instagram um and that's where you can see and hear some of the amazing work i do mainly avoiding brexit and those sorts of debates now though trying to talk about more fun things because otherwise we'll all go insane yeah i think uh I think that that's probably for everyone's mental health. That's probably a good thing. Well, thank you very much, Christo. And thank you for listening to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction, produced by Shoutout UK and recorded and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy here in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department.